Hey, hey, it's Adrian Lawrence and welcome to the conversation. Today joining me, I have the founder of Revolt Fund. That's James Walls. Thanks for joining us, James. Thank you for having me. All right, James, so what is, what's this fund? What's going on? So Revolve is an aggregate of philanthropic dollars and then intentionally putting it out as recoverable grants to support BIPOC-led businesses and nonprofits. Oh, fantastic, and forgive me, I said revolt, revolve, forgive me. <laughs> yeah, so what made you want to start this fund? So I bring 15 years of impact investing, legal and business experience. And one of the things that I always saw, there was a gap when it comes to friends and family financing. So I wanted to try to explore and use the grant tool that foundations have and push it further and see if we can find ways to kind of fill that gap. Okay, and so when you're talking about this gap here, um, I guess let me ask you, why does it matter? So I think it's it's critical as we kind of think about closing the racial wealth gap or increasing wealth in BIPOC communities. Oftentimes, you need capital to create more capital. And so if you look at household wealth, it's disproportionately low, lower in BIPOC communities. So what we wanted to do is figure out a way to, to infuse capital in a non-extractive manner and using a grant tool to do that. Okay, and so kind of break it down for us, how does it work? Sure, so, so foundations and other philanthropic donors give their capital or give grants to Revolve. We then intentionally identify community strategies. We work with partners within communities and also just directly receive increase from from folks and we provide those grants. And so what is it? it looks like more like traditional grant making, but we put financial milestones in. So when our grantees hit those financial milestones, they return the capital and then we can recycle it back into community. Wow, and that sounds like it's something as you mentioned is much needed, particularly in non-white communities here in the US. And so can you talk a little bit a little bit more about that disparity right now that you are trying to use Revolve Fund to try to address? Yeah, so when you look at the, the capital continuum, um, oftentimes there are a lot of programs, especially targeted towards um, entrepreneurs and nonprofits led by people of color, where they give business support, technical assistance, and a small amount of capital. As those entities begin to grow, then it becomes a, a need of more capital. And you can't typically go to banks to get that capital gap, let's say between $25,000 to $100,000. Um, because it's, it's not cost effective for banks oftentimes to provide that type of loan. Often, also, if you look at community development financial institutions or, or CDFIs, who are typically community lenders, um, they work like banks oftentimes. And so there has to be a way to allow entrepreneurs to kind of get over that, that fam, friends and family capital gap and then get into the capital continuum of debt if they're looking to get debt. Or if they're looking to get equity or venture capital to go into those spaces as well. And so what Revolve does is identify really great models that are being led by BIPOC entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders and provide them that, that kind of push capital to get them over the hump so they can then go get the traditional CDFI loan or the traditional bank loan. Or if they're looking to get equity, they go get that venture capital. All right, wow, and so since starting your fund, have you found essentially the reception to be very welcoming? 
Absolutely. Um, so, you know, fortunately, I've been able to work with a number of my part, my previous partners um, when I had roles in impact investing. And so that's been able to open up some doors for us. We've been able to, again, identify some community groups have been well, have been receptive of the idea. And so, and then funders such as JP Morgan Chase, PNC Bank, Rockefeller, Open Society Institute, Baltimore Office, and others, including the NEKC Casey Foundation, have been able to come to provide us that initial pilot capital that we need to kind of kick off this pilot. All right, and so in terms of finding individuals that you'd like to fund or to invest, what has the process been like? So we have done open calls, we have reached out into community. We have talked to some of the financial intermediaries within communities to identify potential deal flow. And all of those ideas have worked. In particular, I'm very interested in this model of partnering with community grassroots organizations or community smart grant funds, such as the Black Women and Girls Fund that's led by Dr. Maria Johnson. And by doing that, we create a unique pipeline and identify opportunities that typically won't show up. Um, in your, your bank pipeline or your CDFI pipeline. That's fantastic. And it's good to hear people have these new avenues and opportunities that are open specifically for them, especially when uh, a lot of demographics of color have been held back and not able to access uh, the resources that have been given uh, largely to white communities uh, over the history of this nation. Um, and so when it comes to getting the word out, getting people more involved, also people realizing that they have these resources available. Have you done anything on the ground in terms of um, reaching out to people? Yes, so one of the things that we've done is build pipeline partnerships with a number of community organizations, especially in Detroit and Baltimore. Those are our two pilot cities for this work. And what we've done is just inform them about this work. So I participate on panels to kind of talk about impact investing in general. We have worked to do like joint documents with other organizations. And what we really want to do is just kind of get the word out there to recognize that there's more than just your traditional grant or your traditional loan or your traditional equity investment. There are other tools, especially within the philanthropic community that can be accessed. And we want to be able to kind of shed a light on those through the work that we're doing with Revolve. Fantastic, that's really great. Um, I, I just really think about all the assistance it can provide to a lot of communities where doors were otherwise closed. And so in terms of uh, what's next, or at least what you all have lined up, uh, do you have anything coming up very soon uh, that you want the people to know about? So right now, I would say we're in the midst of, of fundraising. So we have been able to secure about a million dollars of capital. We're looking to, to raise up to $2 million and continue to deploy Deploy more funds in the communities that we're serving. We are moving out of the Baltimore and Detroit pilot areas and expanding to a more national footprint. And so we're very excited about that. And so we welcome the opportunity to partner with philanthropic organizations around the country. That's fantastic. And it does sound like there's a lot of potential opportunity. Have you noticed, is there any particular segments or areas, industries where people are looking for funding the most? Yes, so really in the service industries, because if you look at the service industries that disproportionately people of color work in for a number of systemic barriers and reasons, it's very difficult to get loans if you don't have collateral. 
Um, and so we're seeing a lot of interest for folks who are starting up service industries, professional services, um, those types of those types of businesses um, at this point. That's excellent. Fantastic. Uh, and in terms of kind of next steps for you yourself, because I know you're taking a lot of wealth of experience, so to speak, in terms of creating this fund. Uh, is this going to be your full time thing or are you going to venture into a whole new area as well? So I actually serve as the senior vice president of Mission Investors Exchange, which is the leading network organization of impact investing philanthropic institutions around the country. And so I'm I'm very passionate about that work. I'm very passionate about being impact investing. And so I have partnered with a strong fiscal sponsor, which is a statewide organization, Maryland Philanthropy Network, and to kind of help me run Revolve Fund. And then we also brought in advisory committee of, of a number of experts in impact investing from around the country to also support this work. Excellent. And in terms of um, the future of Revolve Fund, is there anything you see in terms of maybe even as you get more funding, moving into different branches or having um, specific targeted investments? Absolutely. So one of the things that we have done Revolve is really narrow in on recoverable grants. But we see the opportunity of, of moving up into providing loans or equity capital as we kind of build out the framework. But we really want to concentrate and focus on recoverable grants at this time. All right then, I understand very much so. And so in terms of what comes next um, for Revolve Fund and getting more people invested, interested, where can they go to find more information? Very easily go to revolvefund.org or admin at revolvefund.org in terms of the email. But you can just reach any of us through that the website or through that email. Wonderful. And so if people are also looking possibly to uplift you to provide funding, same address, same information? Same address, yes. Wonderful. And in terms of um, anything that has been very interesting for you in terms of um, founding this fund and where it's going and all of the help and support, do you have any great anecdotes or stories? So I think the the most important story I can say is that just how the philanthropic community has been so responsive to it. I spent a significant amount of time working on building out this fund. So maybe almost a year and a half of kind of building out, planning, bringing in the right experts to help me kind of think through these things. And it's been wonderful. I will say the philanthropic community at large has been warm and has been very receptive of this idea. And so. That's great. Um, you know, sometimes you often see that when things come in to uplift marginalized groups, people will start seeing it as a zero sum game, as though their pie can only be so big. And thus, if you are willing to uh, create more opportunity for others, then that means less for them. Uh, and so to know that they have welcomed you, that they are really working hard to make this change and to in- help you invest in um, primarily individuals of color who have been marginalized in our society and don't have as many access to resources is a very cool thing. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's James Wall. That's Revolve Fund founder. And thank you so much again. And what is that email address you had mentioned, or at least that website? Revolvefund.org. Excellent. Thanks so much, James. Thank you for the time. It's Adrian Lawrence, and of course, it's TYT's The Conversation. And this time, I have for us Pete Hardin. He's a former judge advocate in the US Marine Corps Deputy. DA, and he also happens to be running for DA in Orange County. Thanks for joining us, Pete. Great to be with you, Adrian. Thanks for having me. 
Yes, so we saw last week 10 commuters suffer gunshot wounds when there was a shooting in a Brooklyn subway system. And so we saw the week before or two weeks before at least a shooting in Sacramento. It seems that there are more and more shootings going on. And I'm sure this is in part COVID precautions being lifted, but what's really going on here? I think we're seeing the ineffectiveness of the traditional tactics that we've had at combating gun violence and preventing crime. Look, we can talk about you know gun restriction laws all we want, but and and those can be effective in a lot of ways, and we can talk about that. But the fact is that by the time we have victims calling 911 and you know, defendants are being rushed to the, I'm sorry, victims are being rushed to the hospital. Defendants are being prosecuted in court, it's too late. We have poured resources into reactionary responses to crime. And it's time we start getting ahead of these issues and looking at creative ways to solve them on statewide and national levels. Yeah, definitely something needs to be done because it really seems these mass shootings, these weekly shootings, these all of a sudden just suddenly shootings, not only are we becoming numb to them, but that they're a particularly American phenomena. And that tells us if other nations don't have these problems, that this is something unique to us. Why do you think that is? It is unique to us. I mean, you know, we could get into a lengthy academic conversation about the Second Amendment here. Um, and the uniquely American issues that lead to this kind of behavior. Um, but I think the important thing now is to acknowledge that we have to massively invest in violence prevention efforts that are community-based. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science, Adrian, right? We, we know the things that reduce crime. In the year 2022, we have the data and the social science to tell us so clearly that community-based job training, um, health support, substance use treatment, even things like after school programs and literacy programs in uh, for at-risk youth can make such a huge difference in crime prevention in our communities. And that's the kind of thing that we need to turn to along with violence interruption programs. And there are some great models for that across the country. And so do you know what, um, or can you speak to one of those models that do you find to be particularly effective? Yeah, absolutely. There's one called Advanced Peace. I want to acknowledge to your viewers that I have nothing to do with the organization. But you know, the Brookings Institution found that Advanced Peace contributed to something like a 20% drop in gun homicides in Stockton. And I think over 20% drop in Sacramento over a two year period. So you can check it out online. I would I would encourage people to do that. Programs like that need more investment and support. Yeah, it definitely seems that something needs to be done without a doubt. And also, you know, it definitely seems that there is a debate going on with as far as it concerns the Second Amendment and what is our right versus what rights or benefits, opportunities, privileges should be curbed for the better of all. Where would you say things stand right now with that whole Second Amendment debate? Look, you know, the the vast majority of Americans are in support of common sense gun legislation. Um, and the studies tell us pretty clearly that states that have such legislation are safer. And what's more, states that are buffeted by, in other words, states that are surrounded by other states that have the same type of legislation have even lower rates of uh, gun violence and significantly um, uh, suicide by gun. Here in California, for example, you know, we have myriad gun laws. 
And uh, death by suicide um, um, with a gun is significantly lower here than it is in other places. But we are surrounded by other states that don't have uh, necessarily the same types of laws uh, that we do. So, you know, look, the Second Amendment is here to stay. I, I don't think it's worth really wasting time on that. It's what are we going to do to keep ourselves safe and our and our families and our kids safe? Um, you know, how are we going to invest in reentry programs as well? Uh, to, so that people returning to our communities uh, can reintegrate into, into society in a positive and productive way. 95% um, of people in prison will one day be free. And uh, we've got to invest in rehabilitation support in our correctional institutions. Absolutely, uh, it seems that United States also has that unique problem of being a carceral state. Um, and so when we stop putting capitalism first, if that'll ever come, then perhaps we can start investing in our people. And I know that you are looking to invest in the people of there of Orange County as you run for district attorney. Uh, what motivated you to essentially take this route? When I was a young prosecutor, Adrian, um, as, a, as a DA, I saw people recycling through the criminal justice system time and again for the same set of underlying reasons. The, the crimes may have differed slightly, but it was always due to a mental illness or addiction or homelessness. You know, until we recognize those as the public health crises that they are uh, and treat them as such, rather than just issues to be treated uh, dealt with in the criminal justice system. Until we recognize that. We cannot simply lock up our country's problems and prosecute away deep societal ills. And we are never going to climb out of the gross over incarceration that we have in this country. And your viewers should know that you know, we Americans constitute 5% of the world's population and yet we house 25%. One in four people who are incarcerated in the world are housed here in the United States. If incarceration were the answer to public safety, we'd be the safest nation in the world. But Clearly, we're not. We need modern solutions to the modern problems we're facing. Um, and uh, you know, Orange County is the, the fifth or sixth largest county in America. Uh, is a great place to create a model for sustainable justice reform. And I would definitely think that uh, people down there they might welcome it. I don't necessarily know, but in terms of the reception and the thought of the things that you want to focus on and that you truly want to make an impact with as hopefully becoming DA, are you finding that the constituents down there are very welcoming of these ideas? Absolutely, yeah, Orange Countyans and I think so many similar communities, you know, purple communities across the country are willing to have a conversation about criminal justice reform, about how to police in a way that makes us safer. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed meeting with folks from uh, all over the political spectrum uh, about these issues. And um, yeah, I think Orange County is ready for a change. Our current district attorney is you know, the sort of most traditional chest thumping, tough on crime prosecutor that you can imagine. But in his time in office, you know, homicides have reached a 23 year high in Orange County. Uh, violent crime and other crime uh, across the board in Orange County is up. And homelessness is also up by by over 40%, showing that you know the traditional sort of lock them up, throw away the key approach just doesn't work to keep us safe or increase quality of life that we prize so so highly here in Orange County. Now, in terms of um, taking that less traditional route and going for something more progressive, uh, is there any other agencies that you would work with to accomplish these goals that you're talking about that are less focused on the punitive angle and more on the social rehabilitative angle? 
Absolutely, yeah, there are a number of community groups. There are a ton of grassroots community groups in Orange County who are dedicated to changing the paradigm by which we work in Orange County and a number of national groups. I mean, I had a great conversation the other day with the Innocence Project, for example, who told me you know, to, to my surprise and chagrin that our current district attorney will not let them retest DNA in a number of cases. Uh, even though uh, you know that can lead to uh, in exonerations of people who are wrongfully convicted, uh, so you know I'll be a, a champion for uh, retesting that type of DNA and a and a vigorous conviction integrity review unit. Uh, we'll work with the Innocence Project and others across the country uh, who can give us good solutions to these issues, as well as the people in the office. I mean, look, we have a lot of great uh, dedicated public servants, uh, prosecutors in our office who want to do the right thing and I think are interested in looking at the modern data and social science that tells us really clearly, not just that the system is broken in some fundamental ways, but it gives us a lot of hope too about how we can fix things and do things better. And so if you were elected into this position and you had something that you could do on day one, what would it be? Uh, two two things I'll mention, you know, ending the prosecution of children as adults. Uh, this is something that just doesn't make us safer. It's never been shown to make us safer. When children are locked up with adults, unsurprisingly to any of us who know anything about the criminal justice system, they're abused and they learn from them. And when they get out, they lash out. And studies tell us so clearly that the recidivism rates for those children is much higher than it is for their peers who go through the juvenile justice system. Again, unsurprisingly, because those kids are given the developmental tools they need to to develop from children into adults. Second, ending the the, the death penalty, which is you know a, a broken system in and of itself. Putting the moral issues of it all aside, it just has never been shown to deter crime and is a sentence that will never be carried out, given the moratorium on executions in in California and the fact that you know public sentiment is changing on these issues. But what concerns me most is that. It drags survivors and victims through decades of appeals for a sentence that's never gonna be carried out. So those are two things we can do on day one to really start changing the dynamic and stop siphoning funds away from the things that we know reduce crime. Yeah, it does sound like you have quite the agenda lined up if that's what you would like to do on day one. And so definitely that is fantastic as change is something that needs to be had. And we have less than a minute left now, but I would love for you to be able to share with our viewers where they can find more about your campaign, if there's an opportunity to donate and how they can uplift you. Oh, thanks, Adrian. I really appreciate that. Go to PeteHarden.com. You'll find everything you need there. You can link to our social media in the upper right hand corner is the contribution button. And yeah, I'd be incredibly grateful. There's a bit about my background there and my positions on the issues. And please don't hesitate to reach out. I love having conversations about these issues and it helps me develop as a as a candidate as well. So thank you. Fantastic, and for those who do not know when the election is, can you let people know where they can go and when? Yeah, great question. So ballots hit our mailboxes here in Orange County and across California in 24 days and one month later is when voting ends. So June 7 is election day and when voting ends. You should have your ballot by the Monday after Mother's Day, so keep an eye out. Wonderful, thank you so much for joining us. That's Pete Hardin. He happens to be running for Orange County District Attorney's Office. Great to be with you, Adrian, thank you.